So what do you say to people who are maybe still kind of like uh, skeptical or sitting on the fence about the whole secret space program genre? Yeah, totally. What would you, what would you say to them? Yeah, what do we say to them? I totally get it. I didn't believe it. I mean, this stuff is so... It's normal to not believe this. I mean, look at what we're talking about, cyborgs and clones and other beings in the outer part of the solar system and slave trade. I mean, it's, it's insane. It's totally insane. Um, what would I say to them? Thank you for being open-minded enough to listen to this. Yeah, I, I know it's hard. It doesn't make sense to the linear mind, but also I'd, I'd say if you can look at it from a more multidimensional perspective and a more quantum perspective, and a perspective that isn't so like centered on Terra and humans, that it might begin to make more sense. Um, I, I do appreciate uh, anybody who watches this and is even the slightest bit open to this possibility in our solar system and beyond our solar system. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. It's my pleasure to introduce Rebecca Rose to Exopolitics today. Uh, Rebecca has a remarkable story to tell, and she has some documentation to back that up. So welcome, Rebecca, to the show. Hey, thank you. It's good to be here with you. Yeah. Well, what really interested me in your story was what you had to say about your father who, who served uh, with the U.S. Army Signal Corps and then got to spend time with the U.S. Navy and, and began to work with an aerospace contractor and got a top-secret clearance with that. So that, that really got my attention uh, because his involvement in these black programs was really vital to you being inducted into these programs uh, shortly after your birth in 1972. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your father, his his background, service with the Army, Signal mm -hmm. Corps, uh, his, him working with this company, Sanders Associates. Yeah, okay, well, where do we start? Um, you know, well, my father's military career was not, he wasn't full, you know, he wasn't a career military guy. He was only in the, the Signal Corps, I think six years, and he was in Vietnam, but that was, he was in communications, not in combat. And I know he had said he got a secret clearance while he was working in the, in Vietnam, but I, I don't know. We don't have documentation of that, but um, I don't know that much about, that was before I was born in the 60s. So I don't have that much information about that, but he was vetted. Out, directly out of the army by the, the, the company known as Sanders Associates, which later merged with Lockheed. Um, and he worked there for uh, 20 something years with them. Um, and eventually, um, I think we have record of the top secret, secret clearance coming in in 77. And at the same time, I think in 78, 9, 80, he was sent by Sanders into um, the Navy Reserve, and he was working with Naval Intelligence at that time. But when he was, my father died in uh, 20, two and a half years ago, 2020. And um, it was only when he was in hospice, and I was with him in hospice day after day, that he started to talk a little bit about his work with what I would call the military industrial complex. And it, I have to say, um, 
I felt quite stupid that I didn't realize he was working in these deep classified projects. And he mentioned um, CIA and NASA and the alphabet agencies really burned into my brain. You know, I, um, I didn't know any of this. He traveled a lot when I was a kid. We weren't ever to ask where he went or what he was doing, who he was with. Um, it was all very uh, under the table. And now I can see so much more in hindsight. Um, he was a guy who was very buttoned up. And as, as they, they want guys that are like that and that they, they, I think they train them to be very much, um, you know, don't ask, don't tell, don't divulge the secrets. And he, he was, yeah, he was an engineer. We could call him an engineer and I would call him an inventor. He was an inventor. He said in hospice, like they got a lot of patents out of me. They got a lot of things out of me. And he mentioned, um, and I asked him because I had received some information uh, psychically that he, you know, had higher help, let's say to solve some of his work uh, projects. And he, I said, daddy, you, you feel like you might've had maybe, um, and I meant extraterrestrial help. I said, do you, do you feel like there are other beings helping you with this? And he said, he looked away and he smirked. He looked at the wall and he said, yeah, kind of. Um, I mean, I would identify him as a starseed for sure. And I think too, he had contact with the greys, some kind of um, involvement with the Zetas that went back as far as I can tell um, into his own childhood. And I, I wanna share with the audience too, that I, I do work as a seer and a channel. And, and so for me to have visions and to receive um, like messages from um, the multi-dimensional arena is not unusual for me, just to give a little context when I say I have a vision or this or that. Um, he was enigmatic and I didn't really begin to understand his history until a month or two before he died. Well, you did send me a lot of documents that show uh, his military service and his work for this uh, company, uh, Sanders, and mm -hmm. uh, that he had these security clearances and working in uh, very, uh, very secretive projects, shall we say. So that's kind of like documented. Now, <clears throat> in 1972, he's working for the Sanders Associates, and he's got a secret clearance, and he's very talented. And it's not all that surprising to me that uh, somehow his children, and you in particular, would come to the attention of a, a group of extraterrestrials. So you know, can you explain what happened in 1976 where you as a four-year-old were, were taken by the insectoids, the greys, and, and what happened to you? Yeah, so a lot happened in my fourth year of life. There's so much going on. Um, that was really a pivotal year for me. But I was, um, I mean, long story short, I'll just get to it. I, I was taken to the moon. I started being abducted at night. Um, I had many, and this, it wasn't confined to my being four. This went on for some years, off and on. It wasn't like every night, but I had many, many experiences in childhood of being, um, waking up mute and paralyzed. And I, I would try very much to, mm, and it was just, I was terrified and very odd things like having my foot, my head at the foot of the bed and um, my clothes were on weird and all these things that I see now. I had lots of nosebleeds during this time. Um, lots of those things are correlated. Now I realized from my research with abduction. Anyway, I was taken to the moon and um, was working in kind of light duty at what I recognize now as the dark fleet base. 
Um, and I was in a, I know this because it was, it was completely German, Draco and Grace. And I was interfacing mostly with the Draco. Um, before this all happened, I had an interaction uh, through my consciousness with a Draco who took me during a time of intense trauma, kind of toured me around through the moon facility, the moon base, and basically was showing me, this is where you're going to be. You're going to be with us and we will own you. So it was a, at the time it was a, um, it, it, and the, where I was working was it within the cloning, cloning and experimentation labs. Um, that's, that's kind of what I know about. That was where I was doing stuff. And first it was more like training me telepathically um, to interface with beings that they had, that they were experimenting on beings that I would say uh, were captives or um, in, in their, um, in their lab. So I was, how do I say this? Um, it was a slow developmental process in which they trained me to, um, again, interface telepathically with what I would call as benevolent beings, beings I don't even have names for or really understand who they were, where they came from, many different kinds of beings. And uh, it was almost like I was, because I was a child, I was perfect for befriending the beings. And ultimately I was to get a snapshot of their DNA, taking that um, with my mind and then sending it back to a central database. It seemed, I mean, it's a, in a way, not a complex job, um, but there, I feel so much like I betrayed. I, I mean, I was forced to betray, you know, these friendships that seem to develop in a, at least a cursory way with, with beings I, I met who were captive there. Um, yeah, and it, and it, the anomaly here is that this wasn't, I had a long time and back later, 20 and back experience when I was nine. And what I didn't understand about the moon is like, why don't like, why don't they just keep me up there? Why is there this backy forthy thing? Cause I would, I would be the, the, the grays and the, um, I remember ant beings being part of the kind of team that would take me out. And I would go to what I call the bus station, like this, an underground substation of some kind. I still, do not know exactly where that was. And from there I would be, um, I remember being strapped in around my shoulders in, into a seat and going to the moon. And this happened, I don't, I don't know how many times they brought me there and back. Um, so it, it was over a period of years. Uh, one of the results of them taking you there was that uh, these intuitive abilities uh, came online and, and that's a very common pattern. I, I, I know in studying UFO contacts or abductions that that's one of the things that often occurs is that people who are taken, whether by benevolent or or by the, the kind of more enigmatic greys, that their psychic abilities are suddenly turned on and they, and they start to stand out. Mm. And so they become valued or sometimes recruited by military corporations uh, who are watching how these people perform. So it seems that uh, you, you were identified as a four-year-old as someone having the right genetics mm -hmm. and um, they were switched on uh, when, when you were taken up there. Yeah. Well, of note too, that my mother's family is all German and there's some really dark uh, 
trauma experiences from her family too. And I think that's, you know, I'm sure that was part of why they, what the selection process was about. I mean, I've described in other interviews and presentations that, um, I mean, I do feel now in hindsight that my parents were breeders for kids for the pro, I think my brother was also taken. And I think my father ultimately, when, when looking back and things I experienced, things I was given psychically and things I knew about him, I think he was also taken at age nine and not necessarily into a 20 bag, but he was also abducted. Okay, yeah. so that's a generational. It totally seems theme. like that. I didn't know anything. Michael, I feel so stupid. That, again, I didn't, like all this stuff could be right in front of me and I wouldn't have known it. It took me, you know, almost five decades to sort this out. So, and I, I would share too that I was, um, again, another vision. And I want to, I could also share this with the audience that um, a lot of my memory of retrieval came through um, started to come through through deep meditation and so i haven't done hypnotic regression but i have um you can change your your uh brainwave state from the beta brainwave state that you and i are in now to say at least alpha or maybe go down into a theta state and that's where i feel the subconscious mind starts to reveal its contents that's where i've gotten a lot of information from over time and um being patient with that journey but um <clears throat> at one point several days running, I was given a, I can't say it was a memory, but a, a psychic vision that I really didn't want to see. And my father sitting in a room, a conference room with two grays, some guys in Navy suits and some guys in business suits. And he was being shoved papers at him and being forced to sign papers or um, cajoled into signing papers. They were telling him that this is for the betterment of humanity. And to me, this was him signing us away, or at least signing me away. Um, I don't know at what point that happened in the trajectory of my, you know, at what point in my life that happened, but I think there was a conscious uh, agreement that was made, you know, um, that there was, um, whether he was of right mind or not at the, at the moment he, he signed for me, we don't know, um, but, but there was a formal agreement made, I think. Yeah. Yes, that would um, make sense that uh, he kind of like uh, was a party to identifying you and giving permission for for this to happen. Now, you were taken to the moon over that period from 1976 to 1981, you know, 1981 when uh, you were recruited into the program, you know, 20 and back. But in that first five years, being taken back and forth to the moon, now, this moon base, can you describe it? I mean, what was the shape? You know, I don't think I ever saw it externally. I mean, I would come up, it just, I, what my clearest memories are of going to the substation or the, like the bus station, as I describe it, um, in coming up underground there. But I don't, I don't actually remember seeing it from a ship coming in. I wish I had more recall on that. Uh, yeah. Okay, so then, yeah, go. Oh, I was just thinking that um, the, the memories I have there are mostly of, I remember beings in captivity and also these very sterilized type of, you know, metal tables, labs, um, and humans, uh, Germans that seem to be, um, there was a, an, uh, like an automaton quality to some of them, almost like they were, I guess the language that comes is like desold, maybe. Um, 
working and doing different experiments and collating data and so on and so forth. And there was a cloning aspect to all this, but I only saw, um, I didn't see the whole base. I would not have had a, a reason to see the whole facility. And I was so little that, um, you know, I, I, a lot of my memories are of me just having my head down, looking at the ground, trying not to see anything. Uh, again, I think early on, th this is my earliest years being taken different places. So, um, Well, yeah. I, I recall uh, one of the people I've interviewed, uh, Niara Islay, oh, who actually okay. yeah. worked for the Air Force, that she was taken in the early 80s to the moon base. And she described seeing things very similar to what you've described. Mm. And, uh, yeah, mm. she described it as a slave facility and people were just abused and uh, mm. just all manner of abuses were, were ongoing there. It was it was kind of seemed to be just a, an ongoing process of traumatising people and mm. you know, uh, creating the kind of like split personality, the, the altar that could be used in mm. the programs. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, there was a point at which I was taken for that kind of programming, mind control programming, trauma-based mind control programming, after which I was given, you know, I described some of the more light duties I was given. And after that experience, I was then um, given a different job and I was, had, you know, become a little older. And this was actually um, working a, what I could call as a jump gate to Dulce. So there was a connecting point between the moon and Dulce in the, the dungeon, as I, as I call it, the, the deeper, more um, degraded aspects of the lab and experiments that were the domain in Domicile of the Graves. That was actually in Dulce. And I didn't actually know this as I got memories back. And I, I mean, it's like a hell realm. I didn't understand what I was seeing. And, and this is or where I was because the seamlessness of that transition from um, the moon into Dulce was like me going into my bathroom or my kitchen. It wasn't a complicated thing. But again, I think they, it seems to me now that they needed a child's frequency to, um, to help get cargo through, to operate the gate. They needed something in my, uh, we could call it a childlike innocence, but I think there's also something in the child's biology as it is yet unformed uh, in, in many ways. Um, it creates more of a fluency with frequency and it assisted something in the mechanism of the, the jump gate technology. Well, that does coincide with uh, a lot of the Montauk um, project witnesses who said that, you know, in the 1970s, up until 1983, that they were testing the jump gate technology using children. So um, it's interesting that you were part of that group that were mm -hmm. uh, in take, you were taken to Montauk and also taken to Dulce and, uh, mm -hmm. and to the moon um, using these jump gates. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that seems to have been a critical part of this uh, acclimation process for them to get to uh, use these jump gates eventually for kind of adults and special forces people. Yeah. Yeah. And again, as, a, it's, as I've gone over, you know, I had a few years to begin to process this contextually. I understand so much more in hindsight, like when memories come up, came up at first, I, I couldn't put it all together about the whys and wherefores, like why this or why that, or why was, why was I needed to, to work a technology out there, you know, or I do have a lot more um, understanding, which is 
helped me so much. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, I can't hear you. Can you hear me? So yes, I can hear you now. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, sorry, I forgot to unmute myself. <laughs> uh, so in, in 1982, you're you're nine years old and uh, taken to Great Lakes Naval Station, and you're put through an MK program. So you were then taken to Mars. So you want to explain what what happened at the naval station? You being go you being put through the program and then being taken to Mars as part of the twenty impact. Yes, yeah. So the biggest um, the biggest takeaway from that naval station and what happened there was a the trauma bonding with a what we could call as a twin, a psychic twin or a my lab twin. We were um, again held in cages. Like the caging and captivity theme is really big in the programs, or at least when I was in them. Um, I was bonded with a, a child who is my also my age, not a biological twin, nobody I'd ever met before, but um, we were bonded together psychically, emotionally, um, sexually, very young, and, and in every way made to love each other, but also eventually in their programming made to hurt, harm, and traumatize each other. And such would be our relationship when we were finally sent to Mars um, together. We were, it's very much, I mentioned this before in interviews and, and my talks on this, that it's very much a, um, the protocols for that, the twinning are very much taken out of um, Nazi Germany and also the Illuminati, what I call the Illuminati playbook. And it's very much a, an act of betraying what you most love and being betrayed by the person you most love. So it's very, um, it's dark and very insidious. But the point I think, um, like on Mars was to create the two of us being stronger together than we might be as individual units. So we were working psychically together on um, what I could call as recon missions on Mars at the, the base there. Um, and I always feel like we could see more together than we could see apart. We were strong as a team. And I think it helped our little unit to become successful. And also I can see that when you, love somebody and are so bonded to somebody and in a way can't even tell yourself different, you know, like I couldn't tell the difference between the two of us really. Um, you're going to have a successful mission. They want you to, it's like they're betraying your most human and humane and um, heart-based, you know, uh, blueprint there, but to, to, to the end of having a successful, whatever it was we were working on at the moment. So, um, so you're age nine. You're you've been taken to Mars, and the mantids start working on you to enhance your psychic abilities, and then you're built out to be a psychic super soldier, or sorry, a, a cyborg yeah. super soldier. So, can you yeah. just explain what what happened? Yeah, exactly. How do we explain, explain this one to your audiences? This is always hard for even me now to wrap my head around. Um, so we could, in simple terms, we could say a, a, a human that's, that's built out with AI. But in, I would say, I would say cybernetic, a cybernetic organism, which is part, kind of part tech. I mean, we were built out chemically, biologically, mechanically, uh, psychically, et cetera, et cetera, in every way built out. 
So, and this takes place over time. Um, we had a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of training, a lot of training, but, uh, and also these, um, amendments to physiology that were made. And ultimately, I mean, it's hard even to describe myself as, I mean, you're still human. They want to retain your human qualities, your psychic ability and, and your ability to, to some level, think for yourself. Um, that was my, at least during my time there, it seemed so. Um, but they definitely want to see it, 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 in a way it's a research and development lab. Um, like they want to see how far they can go with a human. What can we make them do? How far can we go before the, the system, the biology just is corrupted and it can't be used anymore. Yeah. Okay. So this, this is a, then the beginning of a 20 year program mm -hmm. where you're serving with the Mars defense force. So is that what, is it, what it was actually called, the Mars Defence Force? And do you remember anything about, uh, you know, who led it and how it was uh, Yeah, so I, I know that we were, the early parts of this um, were, I mean, I was eventually shipped off other places, but I, it was patrolling a base. I mean, it was very mundane in a lot of ways. So we were just making sure that the base was safe. We'd be on foot command or air command as a, I was a pilot um, driving a really old clunky craft. Um, but we were just making sure that the, the base was not um, being, you know, ambushed or if there was, we, we had a lot of interactions with the Mantids who I have a lot of, um, I actually really respect the Mantids and, and uh, had good interactions with the Mantids, but they were our primary um, how do I say we co-opted some of them to work for us as surgeons. And um, I mean, they're very highly gifted uh, with um, frequencies, technology of, of frequency. Um, but we were also tasked with trying to get some of their uh, technology, I guess. And they're, they lived in, they lived underground. They were um, to me, they were living in a built out environment that was extremely high level, like nothing I'd ever seen before. And our commanders wanted us to kind of figure out what the technology was, the frequency fence that was surrounding their underground uh, domicile, the architecture underground that was protecting them so well, because they didn't have tech. Like we think about tech as weapons and um, craft, they didn't have that stuff but they were very, very highly advanced. And they were living in a, this kind of, um, I mean, I remember going in there and having a mission. Dean was there and we've got a small unit together and our commanders had sent us over uh, to figure out, we were just thinking we were hunting for the Manted, uh, the elders I've called them, the, the head of command, let's say the, the older Manteds that, um, held a certain frequency of the whole mantid, seemed to hold a whole frequency together for the whole mantid collective. We thought, oh, if we can get that, we can like begin to co-opt all of them and there won't be any more problems with uh, territorial disputes here. Um, but I re remember feeling that this wasn't built by the mantids. The mantids have been there long enough to call them native to Mars, but this was built by higher beings from, I don't know where, um, very advanced, architecture that had a lot of light frequency, almost like going into a crystal 
uh, crystalline kind of structure, even though to our, our vision, it wouldn't appear that way, but to feel it experientially, it wasn't, um, I don't even have human language for it. It was opulent, it was beautiful. But we didn't realize that if we weren't of a certain frequency ourselves, we weren't told this, that we could also be killed by that frequency fence. So a lot of really interesting stuff with the mantids and um, the mantids didn't want war with us. They, they were minding their own business, but to us at the time, we were trained to look at them as target practice. Yeah. Okay. So what can you say about the plane that you were flying? I mean, are we talking about? Yes, let's talk about that. Um, yeah, well, that what, thing, what kind of a thing was it? I really, um, I questioned this memory because it kept coming back as this clunky old military helicopter that had been retrofitted for Mars. I'm like, is that insane or what? But now I think, you know, knowing what we know about the early Germans and, you know, military movement, it is possible. But I had a, I had a uh, AI, you know, a thing in my head that communicated with the craft. And if I was out in patrol, um, I, it was all my, my whereabouts, my location were always communicated to, to central command. So it wasn't like I could ever just, you know, pilot myself away or leave. Um, but that the craft was pretty, I would say it was pretty chunky. So we're we talking like uh, like a Chinook helicopter, something like that, that was just retrofitted for Mars? It felt like that. It didn't feel like, you know, a very high-tech thing. It was, um, I don't know if that's like all they had or what, if that was just the training mobiles, you know, that they gave us because our, our duties were not um, high on the list, let's say. We weren't like fighter pilots at the time. We were just kind of making sure things were good. So um, I, I was piloted other much higher level um, craft when I was owned by the Draco farther out in the solar system. But the, the Mars craft was a, I eventually, I remember crashing and being picked up by um, another group of reptilians, uh, humanoid reptilians on Mars who were actually, I mean, uh, kind of benevolent compared to everything else I'd experienced in the programs up to this point, meeting them was like one of my high points, but I, I had crashed and I don't actually know now was I shot down by somebody. Don't know, but they picked me up and brought me back to where they live. And again, this was underground. It was pretty interesting. It's fascinating. Um, they ended up, they wanted to know if they could use my technology in some way or my biology they this race had seemed to be regressed in some way through a, a cataclysm at some point on mars and they uh they were regressed genetically because there were so few of them left um and they i lived with them for a while and i think what happened when i crashed was that my my connection back to central command was destroyed and they didn't come after me so um eventually they cannibalized me for parts and it ended my, I was cloned. Um, it ended my tenure in that particular scenario in that body. So tell us about those indigenous Martian reptiles. I mean, what, yeah. what kind of, yes. what kind of 
you know, philosophy did they have? Um, yes. You know, what, yeah, what kind of technology yeah, they were, did they use? Oh, they were fascinating. They lived underground in a place that actually had water, vegetation. Um, it, they had everything they needed underground. And my understanding, too, of this was that they, again, they didn't have craft or weaponry the, the way we think of high tech, but they had a very high tech spiritual relationship with the planet Mars itself. And through that, they were able to create, after, in the wake of this cataclysm, been able to create what they needed for food, water, um, light, a light source, which it was, they had a light down there, a brilliant light, a different kind of environment. It had what I could only call as some kind of tree, reminded me of a palm tree, but I don't, I don't really have language. I don't know what it was, big, tall stuff and like water running. And I remember eating with them, um, some kind of green thing. <laughs> um, and they had a, I mean, it was sort of like an indigenous community here on earth, on, on our earth, our planet, um, in that they had, um, like, I remember sitting in a circle while we were, we were eating and they had some kind of communication going on. It wasn't telepathic and I couldn't communicate because they didn't seem to have telepathy, but there was a, a communal environment there and it was very peaceable. It wasn't, um, violent. It wasn't warlike. Um, they minded their own business and there were not very many of them left, but they, uh, they meant me no harm. I, I always refer to them as the, the people who both <laughs> saved me and stole me, you know, in a way they stole a valuable asset, but because they were not, they weren't that advanced. They didn't like another race would have known how to get my tech and use it for something or my biology, get something out of my DNA to help them. They didn't really know how. Um, so it's interesting with the mantis and these um, reptoid beings that um, they're indigenous there. They didn't have this sort of anomaly in how we go about thinking about extraterrestrials with, again, like the weapons and the craft. Uh, that was um, outstanding in my memory because it was so different. Yeah. yeah, I remember interviewing Randy Kramer back in 2015, and he described also being captured by these reptilians and uh, oh, yeah. living with them. For a short oh, he did. Period. I didn't and, know that. I've never listened to his whole testimony. Wow. Yes. So he, yeah. he described something very similar to you, that they were very peaceful, very spiritual. They didn't really have high tech. Relatively few of them. They mm -hmm. uh, really just kind of kept to themselves. They, they, they fought against the draconians. Mm -hmm. And they were very territorial. Um, mm -hmm. So And it was kind of something like the, wow. the last samurai, a, a situation like that. Mm. So it sounds wow. like uh, what you went through was was you know, fairly analogous to that. Wow, I had no idea. Thank you, thank you for that. <laughs> like kind of a little bit of confirmation. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, I mean, if there's good memories in the programs, I this is one of them. Even though it didn't like end well for me there, there's a there's almost this feeling of missing them. Like I've I've thought in the interim, like what happened to them? Did they make it? Are they still out there? Or did they did they die out? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he also spoke of them in, in very positive terms that there had been a kind of bond that had been created because they were a very noble uh, species. Yes. Wow. Um, yeah. Now let's talk about the the, the mantids on, on Mars. You'd already talked about about yeah. them, but you you describe a, an incident where you were you and a team of seven encounter uh, some some of the mantids on Mars surface and 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 
you're in these stealth suits, but yours malfunctions. Oh yeah, so- this was this this actually was with a spider, a giant spider. Well, this wasn't the mantid. So yeah, we were out. Um, again, we were patrolling, and there were seven of us in a in a unit, and we have yeah the suits. And I know exactly what the suit was like because I know what Dean was wearing and we were had analog, you know, he, we weren't the same thing. They're black suits with a little, like a little neck tight collar here. And they're, they're so tricked out. I couldn't even describe what all the tech tech is, but the, um, the suit had, um, I would say cloaking technology. Now at the time when this happened and the memory came in about this, there's a big spider coming down over the rise and uh, they all, to me, they just vaporized. They were gone. And my tech malfunctioned and I was, I was hit by some kind of energy weapon. It wasn't like it even broke my skin, but it was like frying something almost like a, a burning inside, um, whether it was biology or tech that was burning, I'm not sure. But I remember being face down in the sand and I was dead, but my consciousness, and remember, this is like clones, clones of me, right? My consciousness was going somewhere, didn't know where to go. It's very anomalous. Um, like, where do I migrate back to? There was some moment of uh, ambiguity, I would say, there of, of, I'm gone, but I'm not gone. It's a curious memory. Um, yeah. So that was a, it, the spiders were, um, oh, they're big, hairy and smelly, like a, like a deep brown, dark chocolate color. And my, in, the, in the memory, it feels like the thing is like as big as a house. I'm sure it's probably not true, but it feels so big and menacing because they're so much taller and quite it, like a bit frightening. So, <clears throat> yeah. so that was an incident where you were, were killed and your consciousness transferred over to a cloned version of you that had been prepared. So, yeah, well, I mean, you, you kind of described a little bit about the process that it was very difficult to, to explain, but somehow your consciousness knew to, to go to a clone as opposed to going into some kind of death cycle where... Uh, as we understand the death cycle, you know, you, right. you the body, you yeah. go to source. Yes. I love yeah. this question. I um, like, can I describe how that works? <laughs> I think that's what we're getting at. I, I, I don't know that I can articulate exactly how it works, but it almost like there's a, a central, uh, how is it like a central body that it's going back to um, there? Like it's calling it back almost like a signal or frequency calling it home. But the time, the interim time is very um, kind of upsetting. Yeah. It was emotional when I first recalled this. And uh, I mean, remembering yourself dying is not really, you know. I also think it's changed how I live my life. But as far as the cloning, uh, the cloning goes, um, I mean, there's different ways to build a clone. It depends what you want it for. Do you want it for just like light duty for a few days? Or do you want it to be something that's going to stay around for a long time and be in heavy use? Um, my impression, at least in, in of one way that this is done is through splitting, uh, almost like having a blueprint of the etheric body. And, and my definition of the etheric body would be like the, the physical form of myself or you, anybody, uh, that, or sorry, the energetic form of, of my biology here. It's, it's almost like a energy blueprint that contains all the physical, physiological expression 
of me sitting here, just an energy format. Um, taking that, it's almost like a, a lattice of energy and slowly building the biology around it. And that can take some time. Um, but like I said, there's, I'm, I'm not an expert on how clones are made, but I do think that is one way. And I think that that has, Colony Tech has, has evolved over time. Um, and certainly, I mean, I feel like I was in this kind of dated version of the programs and then what happened later in the 90s and on and on has been, um, things have come, come farther. Yeah. Well, Tony Rodriguez, uh, he explained how it worked in terms of when, when he was taken into the program um, at, at, at age, at a certain age, I think um, he was taken and that they created a clone body. So they, they took his physical, they took his, had his physical body, they cloned a version of him and then transferred his consciousness into the cloned body. Yeah. And, and then he went off and did his thing and, I think that would kind of like give us an idea of, of how it would work, that if that cloned body, you know, you're in that cloned body and that's killed, your consciousness wouldn't go back to prime source, but would go back to the original body. Yeah, yeah. And and I assume that that would probably happen as well for, you know, if you create a clone of a clone, that the mm -hmm. consciousness would go back to the last body it occupied until there's no more bodies and then it would go back to create a source. So that would that's my Basically yes. Of, of how yeah. Work. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's difficult to um, kind of articulate in 3D language these concepts or technologies that we don't necessarily have an analog for here on this planet. Not not um, not in popular conventional terms. Yeah. Well, that seems to be how the ETs do it, though, and how the yeah. technology the technology often responds. Like advanced ET technology responds to uh, to a, a, not just the DNA that a person carries, but also the soul vibration. Yes. So if a yeah. soul is transferred from one body to another, you know that so that clone body would now have the the soul frequency, and also the DNA frequency would be a match. And mm. so if the body dies, then you know of, of, it goes back. So so yeah, that's a complex process but definitely it would make sense that you could move people from body from one clone body to another clone body and they could die but as long as you have enough clones yeah that you know you could just keep sending them off onto missions and that seems to have been what happened in your case i know <clears throat> tony rodriguez and uh, uh randy kramer he's he said that there were many clones made of him multiple mm -hmm. clones because uh yeah he would die on, on missions and he would just pop straight back into a clone body mm -hmm. yeah okay that i mean it always sounds very bizarre when i talk about it like as i'm hearing myself speak about being a clone in a cyborg it's it's very strange but um it's good to have a little uh i guess corroboration for the weirdness um and it's true i think with the the, the people who are most weaponized in the programs being what we call as super soldiers we are uh, we become a bit expendable and because they put so much time and I mean, it's, it's a lot of, of resource expenditure into creating what I call a weaponized asset. Um, and those assets can be traded. They, they're, they're worth a lot, um, can be traded off to other groups. So you were eventually traded uh, off to the, to the draconians. So that's interesting. So what, what was it that, 
some at some point in your 20 and back yeah. service, uh, you got you got traded out and it was then was used by the draconians. So explain mm-hmm. how did that happen? Yeah, how did that happen? Well, it was after a long, the long process on Mars being built out into the you know highest level of what they were able to do with me, um, that they sold me uh, to the Draco, who had a. Um, this was all part of the galactic slave trade, and that was part of what was going on on the moon, which I described. You know, the cloning labs and all the experimental programs that had a lot to do with the slave trade, at least at the time. And likewise, the Draco uh, were in control of a, a, I I call it as Planet X. That's how it came back to my memory. I do make the distinction that I don't think that this was Nibiru. Um, However, it's out out just beyond like the Kuiper belt, uh, that far out. And a very large planet that they had as a, um, a place for the coming and going of cargo. And they were in control, the Draco were in control of a, large portal, like a very powerful portal um, within that planet. And they, um, my, my job as I was owned by them was just, it wasn't on the surface of the planet, but more uh, protecting a a large, huge Draco ship, mothership um, in the atmosphere around the planet. And there were a bunch of us as, as um, pilots who would, you know, fly out uh, for our shift and just be, you know, making sure the Draco ship was safe and that the, who, who was coming and going. And I'm sure that I fought with what I'd call benevolent beings and that's um, ways upon me. I know I was controlled to do so, but yeah, that, I mean, again, the, the memories there are mostly of piloting and also being within the, the main mothership. And I wasn't piloting any, I was piloting a craft that was, um, small like a one person thing and it's very much you know i describe it's like the polar opposite of what i was piloting on mars <laughs> this was like this it kind of reminds me of like a manta ray very elegant and um living consciousness almost like a a living being that i interacted with through telepathy and through uh telekinetic there's telekinetic qualities involved it was all very natural um very easy and i actually have some uh, I want to say good memories of, of being out there in space like that with this craft and your craft is your craft. Nobody touches your craft. It's almost like a, you know, how a, um, a human will be wed with their, like a, this may be a poor analogy, but like a pet or a dog, they're so bonded to you. Like the craft is like, there's almost like this call and response psychic relationship with the craft. Um, so almost like when I was out on patrol there, it was a respite from being in the, the presence of the field of the Draco, even though they're, they're still in my mind, right? The Draco uh, commands, let's say, but the Draco are the most fearsome beings I've ever laid eyes upon. And I would suggest always not making eye contact with them because they will send you into a hell realm immediately. I mean, they'll send you into it, but they could, their, their, their gift of working with holographic technology is unparalleled. Um, and they can read your mind like, I mean, it's like beyond reading your mind. I, it's beyond telepathy. And they were, they were quite scary. scary. Um, yeah, they, the Germans, uh, I want to say too, because people might be saying, were the Germans out there? Occasionally there were, I remember Germans visiting, but they were not, uh, they were like 
bit players. I mean, wherever the Draco are, they are top dog without exception, as far as I've been able to tell in my experience. Um, the <clears throat> I don't exactly know what the Germans were doing other than observation and taking notes on what was going on, but the, the Draco were honchoing this whole thing. This was not really a human enterprise. It was far beyond that. Um, so how many Draco did you see in that Cooper uh, Belt base and, and how did they communicate with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I actually, the thing is so big. I don't know. Again, it's like the, the Dark Fleet base. I think I saw like a probably, to, you know, need to know. I don't need, I'm just a, I'm a basically a slave. I mean, for all the built out technology, I don't have a need to know anything. Get in your ship and go patrol shoot anything that's out there. You know, I don't need to know anything. So I, I interacted um, with not too many Draco and a primary person that I interacted with was a, a like a hybrid that was part Draco. So as far as your question, let me see if I can, I don't know that I can answer that accurately. Like how many um, were actually in that whole big ship? A lot. There was a lot of of going on there because it seemed to be such a large uh, a hub for slave trade, and um, we, the, the Draco have gotten rich. They've made an empire on trading, uh, among other things. So I don't have a, a a good number for you on that. My my communion with them because of my stature status was so pretty low. Like I didn't have a reason to be interacting with many of them. Was kept in a, a pretty tight rein, and the community. I think you asked about communication, was through um, commands that were just kind of sent directly, you know, like to Skull. Yeah. Um, so when the Germans showed up, the the Dark Fleet. I mean, what did they look like? I mean, what, what, did they have distinctive uniforms about their? Ooh, what yeah, about their craft? They didn't, what do you yeah, remember? they seem to have almost like this. I mean, I remember them as a bit, it's almost like the craft, as I described the Mars, uh, like helicopter craft, there was a little retro feeling to them as if they had retained something of where they left off in the 1940s. That's my memory of them. I don't, um, I never interacted with the Germans per se, but I remember them being around. And when, when they were around, there'd be like a, there was a little buzz, like, oh, there's some Germans here. Um, I never remember them having, like, like I said, I don't know what they were doing beside observation and taking notes on the situation. They obviously had a good working relationship with the Draco, um, but I, I don't know exactly their uh, directive while they were there. I think they had to be very much under the thumb of the Draco. Okay, so was there any other incident during your 20 and back from 1982 to 2002 that you recall that's significant and worth sharing? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there is. Yeah. Um, what else could I give you guys today? Hmm. Yeah. There is a, um, my mind keeps going back to that mounted, uh, mounted um, architecture underground, but there is a, um, there was another position that I filled at some point, and I remember clearly being, it was in a, in a, a stage in my progression where I'm not anymore what we call a super soldier. 
I am uh, out in these various different, uh, I call them orbital substations. They're uh, run with a skeleton crew and their observation outposts, again, in the outer reaches of the solar system. And um, those, I can't even call them a base because they're too small. They're like in the middle, of, they're obviously in the middle of nowhere. They're not on a planetary body or a star, they're in orbit. Um, they're, they're, they're identifiable by a numerical value that has something to do with AU astronomical units, which is the distance from the earth to the sun, alphanumeric values, rather than having a name, Mars, whatever the planet is, earth, there are no names. I think these, these places seem pretty numerous and there are ways to just observe what was happening, even down thing to things as, as. Um, seemingly insignificant as atmospheric changes. But my impression there is that there had been a change in the programs and how, who was running them, what their objectives were, what their protocols were for dealing with um, people who were in the programs. Um, and I always feel like this was almost like a benevolent assignment. And whenever I ask, like, who owned me out there? What, who was I working for? I always hear the white hats. So I think that there was, you know, I've still more to learn about this. We had a lot of downtime out there. It was almost like, um, I've, I've described this almost as being like in a, I don't know if you remember like old time fire lookouts where they'd be up in, an, in a post by themselves looking out at just looking for fires. Like we had a lot, there were just a few of us at each place and we were looking to see if there were any anomalies, any passing uh, other craft, who's out there, what are you doing? 99% um, of the time we had very little to do, it seemed. But it's a, this is still something that I'm working on figuring out greater context because I'm no longer, it's almost like being given a desk job after all of this traumatic experience. Um, I'm, I'm still looking into this and learning more about it, but maybe that rounds out a, a, a little bit of what I shared today. Okay, so it's uh, 2002. Now you're a, at that age, you're, I mean, in 2002, by then you're around, I, I guess uh, you, you would be 29. 30. Yeah, 30 and so, so what, what happens? I mean, how do you go back to your nine-year-old body back in 1982? Yeah, I don't, I don't actually remember the process of, of regressing back in. I mean, I remember leaving for that experience um, in the night, September, looking back at the, the house, the, my childhood home, you know, has a bed light on in the kitchen and I know I'm being taken out and I know it's, it's almost like happening in slow motion and I know it's not going to go well for me and I can't stop what's happening, but I don't have a memory of actually coming back into my body. Um, I have since had abduction experience or analogs of that, that, that show me what it might've been like, uh, but not from that particular nine-year-old um, experience. So I'm not exactly sure. And I don't actually have no memory of the, like the process of the memory uh, wipe. I don't know. What I do know is that that was my beginning of my fifth grade year. And I was MIA that whole year. I have no memories of fifth grade. I have no photos in my photo childhood photo album of that year. I don't know what happened. There's almost like this long length of amnesia after the fact. So 
I wish I could answer your question better. Yeah. Very interesting, because that seemed to have been pretty much the same age and grade level, as I recall, Tonya Rodriguez was was uh, put into his 20 and back program. Mm. So mm-hmm. it sounds very very similar that, that they were plucking children out and putting them into these programs and age, well, I, I guess, um, yeah, just, just putting them in and exposing them to, to various things. So, yeah, I think, so you well, see, see, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was, I was just going to say, so um, in 1985, so this is three years after you've come back. Now you're doing pretty well. You sent me uh, your, what is it, the California Achievement Test where you scored in the upper 90s in, in many <laughs> categories. So that showed that psychologically, you know, you, you weren't impaired too much from this 20 and back program, which is the reverse of what happened to Tony Rodriguez, who, who described have actually having regressed intellectually, uh, emotionally, Mm-hmm. from being a precocious kid before being taken into the program to then coming out, you know, just emotionally really devastated. But you you seem to do... Uh, well, you know, I, I would say that, um, no, there was a long progression and a slow slide into being in a mental hospital for a while. Uh, I was not doing well emotionally. And after fifth grade, I... It, I remember in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, every year there was a teacher pulling me aside and saying, is everything okay at home? And I would just sit there and cry mutely. So I would say that even though I was able to like, you know, maybe ace those CAT scores, I mean, I was, um, I was not well psychologically. I mean, I was in an abusive environment in my home life. And um, by the time I was 19, I had already tried to kill myself once. And hence I was, I was in a facility to keep me from doing that. I was so depressed and so uh, point blank fucked up that um, I didn't want to be here anymore. And I couldn't put my, the thing is I couldn't, I could, didn't consciously remember any of this. I couldn't put my finger on exactly why other than, you know, there's things in my earliest beginnings that were quite horrible that I did survive. Um, we could point the finger there, but there was so much in me that I I couldn't articulate to myself. I was highly dissociated, um, had no social life and didn't know what the world would have for me or, or I couldn't find any meaning in it. So um, maybe giving a little bigger picture there of, of, of that area of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for clarifying. Yeah. That was, that, that was important because I, I, I know, uh, in Tony's case, it, it impacted him across the board, but it seemed that as far as intellectually, uh, your your abilities uh, stayed pretty sharp mm-hmm. and your intuitive abilities also stayed pretty sharp because I know you've worked professionally. You sent me some testimonials from people yeah. uh, about your intuitive gifts. So it seems that uh, whatever it was that uh, you kept from that program, one of those gifts was the the intuitive yeah. The, well, over time, I mean, it, I lost that for a long time. I mean, I was a very lost soul for a long time and that the intuitive ability didn't really come back fully until I was again into my forties. So, um, in within the last 10 years, and I'm grateful for that. I mean, I've worked really hard to get, uh, get well, get better from everything that's happened. I mean, my life was a wreck for a long time. And, um, it's amazing to me that I'm able to I mean, I never thought I'd be publicly speaking about any of this. And in fact, I never, um, 
years ago, I never would have even thought twice about ETs, you know, non-terrestrial life being a thing. So I've, I've made a huge journey with so many of my own belief systems and um, ways that I've used to cope with the world, my trauma, and, um, you know, got on a real spiritual path at around age 40 again, and that really helped save my life. So, uh, yeah, it's been a, yeah, so I'm sure for all the people who've been in the programs in some manifestation or other, we've had a, a challenging road. It does sound like you've been through something very, very challenging and and, and difficult. Um, but it seems you've you've come out of it with uh, you know, your memories coming back, and yeah. you're able to kind of like piece together some of the more significant aspects of it. So, what do you say to people who are maybe still kind of like uh, skeptical or sitting on the fence about the whole secret space program genre? Yeah, totally. Well, what, would you, what would you say to them? Yeah, what do we say to them? I totally get it. I didn't believe. It. I mean, this stuff is so. It's normal to not believe this. I mean, look at what we're talking about, cyborgs and clones and other beings in the outer part of the solar system and slave trade. I mean, it's, it's insane. It's totally insane. Um, what would I say to them? Thank you for being open-minded enough to listen to this. Yeah, I, I know it's hard. It doesn't make sense to the linear mind, but also I'd, I'd say if you can look at it from a more multidimensional perspective and a more quantum perspective, and a perspective that isn't so like centered on Terra and humans, that it might begin to make more sense. Um, but I do appreciate uh, anybody who watches this and is even the slightest bit open to this possibility in our solar system and beyond our solar system. <clears throat> so what's next for you in, in terms of you know, this information. I mean, is it a, is it about getting more memories of, of what happened? Is it about getting some kind of justice for what happened? I mean, what what's your next? Yeah, step? oh, there's always cosmic justice. This is a beautiful question. That let me give me a moment with this. Um, I mean, continuing to speak on this uh, because I think, I mean, I have an imperative to reveal what happened. I think is uh, become well enough to speak in a, a pretty stabilized way about my experiences. I feel like there is a a higher directive, like, okay, you know, now don't just keep it to yourself. You can't, you have to be part of how this is becoming public. Um, so there is that I do have a, um, like a mission, a small mission around that and, and getting more memories back, of course, you know, continuing to listen in to whatever might be uh, revealed naturally through my, my deep, deeper meditation. And I want to understand, I mean, there's so much, that happened that I probably don't, you know, for being out there as long as I, I was, there's a lot I don't know. There's a lot I do know um, enough to have, like you said, some key features here, but I will be excavating the story until I'm old and gray and leaving this body, you know? And I thought when I first contemplated like coming out about this, I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> Number one, there's, are you crazy? That always comes up. And also like, you don't know everything. I mean, I always say to my interviewers, this isn't all tidied up in, in a package that's complete with a nice little bow. It's going to be, you know, more and more keeps coming and more of my contextual understanding, more sophisticated understanding of what happened and why continues to grow. So that is part of my personal process. And I would say, you know, as I've shared about like, yeah, I was really a mess for a long years and using different, you know, addictions to help me cope with my life. Um, 
I've become, I've become so well. And this is part of that. Like the, it's, it's almost counterintuitive that how would me beginning to speak of this two and a half years ago after my father died, starting to go public with this, how would that make my life better? Because I lost a lot of friends. There's people who think I'm nuts, but somehow it brought me back into uh, a place of empowerment in my life. I never thought that this would happen, um, that it, it would be the, the thing that brought me home. So for people out there who might be struggling with their own memories, um, I would say it's only, it's only going to get better. Like don't shut the gate because it's too scary to remember. Now, now one of the things that you started doing after some accident in 2012 was beginning a spiritual practice. And that mm -hmm. seemed to be critical in you regaining the memories and integrating them without getting too much trauma. So can you maybe speak about what, how important it is to have a spiritual yes. practice? Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I was, I was, I was hit by a car on my a training ride. I was on my road bike in Northern New Mexico of all places. And I was hit by a car and that's when things kind of, I feel like at that moment when I was hit, it blew open something in my brain where memories were contained. And even though I didn't see everything in a great flood, something shifted. I had horrible PTSD. And long story short, you know, I was really backed into a corner at that point and thought, I just need to sit down and begin a meditation practice and get back in relationship with myself in, in the wider um, cosmos. I don't know if I used that word at the time. And that changed my life. Without that, I wouldn't be sitting here. So the importance of spiritual development, like the answers are inside. Everything we need for the journey is within us. It's not out there somewhere. That's why we are such majestic creatures. And that's why so many races want us. Um, there's so much uh, that as yet remains untapped, I think in each of our individual consciousness fields and in, in our collective. I mean, that's what I think we're all doing is, is um, in this movement of disclosure is trying to move ourselves back into that greatness. So do you have a website? Do you have a place where people can visit to learn more about you or if yeah. they want to contact yes. you? Yeah, it's just RebeccaRoseBarfoot.com. And I also have a YouTube channel, Series Blue, Rebecca Rose on YouTube, where people can um, get a lot more detail about everything I've spoken about here today. Well, I want to thank you, Rebecca, for coming forward and, and for your courage in digging up these uh, very difficult memories and being able to share them, even though there is a lot of skepticism that's still out there. So sure. you know, I, I want to honor your, your courage in doing that. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. You have been listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.